private equity investor in the healthcare industry is now a defendant in a False Claims Act complaint. We'll tell you about that and another False Claims Act development next. I'm Courtney Carroll. And I'm Ann Hollenbeck. Uber and Lyft are back in the news, but probably not for reasons you might expect. We'll talk about the implications to hospitals and other providers when they assist patients in using ride-sharing apps to get to their medical appointments. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Healthcare and Life Sciences. Anne, I know we have a couple interesting developments in the False Claims Act arena to discuss today. First, I heard that in what may indicate a major change in who the DOJ is willing to pursue in a False Claims Act case, there was a private equity firm, two of its officers, and one of its portfolio companies that have been named as co-defendants in a False Claims Act complaint. That's right, Courtney. The DOJ intervened in the case against Diabetic Care Rx LLC. Here, the defendants were allegedly engaged in an illegal kickback scheme to induce prescriptions for compounded drugs that were reimbursed by TRICARE. These independent contractors who were working as marketers allegedly forwarded the patient's information to telemedicine doctors who then prescribed creams and vitamins for a per consultation fee without physically examining the patients and in some cases without even talking to the patients. Hmm. Also, the defendants paid the co-payments of a number of patients as an inducement to accept the prescriptions And to boot, the formulations of the prescriptions were manipulated to obtain the highest possible reimbursement from TRICARE, obviously not based on patient need. Wow, those are some pretty serious allegations. What was the private equity firm involvement in the operations of this portfolio company? So the private equity firm had made a controlling investment in the portfolio company, and two of the PE firm's partners became officers of the portfolio company. This is all pretty typical. Yeah. Also, the portfolio company was managed by another company controlled by the private equity firm. But because the private equity partners guided the strategic direction of the portfolio company, uh, the government has said they allegedly knew of and approved those marketing mm-hmm. arrangements. And DOJ views this as enough to make the private equity firm complicit in this alleged misconduct by its portfolio company. Wow. So what's the takeaway here? This could signal a significant expansion of who the DOJ may target to include financial sponsors of companies doing business in the healthcare industry. Also, many healthcare systems are investors in private equity funds. Yeah. So, understanding the complex regulatory requirements that apply to portfolio companies is essential not only at the time of acquisition or investment, but throughout the time of the investment. I know that there were two new False Claims Act updates. What's the second update? Yeah, the second one, also from the DOJ, came to us in mid-February when we saw a press release announcing a $13 million-plus settlement agreement with the University of North Texas. My neck of the woods. That's right, which self-reported its failure to accurately measure, track, and pay researchers for the effort spent on federally sponsored research. So it seems like a pretty significant amount of money, particularly for a university the size of North Texas. Is that what makes this settlement unique? Well, so you're right. This is one of the largest settlements we know about for federal grant effort reporting. But simply the fact that this involves federal grant effort reporting in and of itself makes it noteworthy. There have only been a few published settlements for FCA investigations in this arena in the last 10 years. 
but the high amount of this one and it being in a unique area could signal to Keytam Council and relators a new area uh, for them to try to exploit. Hmm. Well, and this was also an instance of self-reporting. Is that right? Yes, that's right. This did not involve a Keytam relator. It's a self-reporting that covers about a five-year period where the university found itself out of compliance. Based on my experience, these federal grant tracking systems can be very complex. So what should our university clients and others who are receiving grant money do in light of this settlement? Well, so the reminder here is that having an adequate infrastructure to support measuring and tracking these grant dollars and effort towards them is key, but also making sure that the researchers involved are well-educated and understand how to use these systems. Because with new researchers um, all the time, that education process has to be continuing and ongoing to ensure proper use of the system. Yeah, good points. And this is a really great reminder of how the False Claims Act interacts with not only day-to-day operations, but also research. And we want to thank Rachel Page, Katie Schilling, and Kimberly Rockwell for educating us on all the False Claims Act developments that we discussed today. Courtney, I've read the headlines about Uber launching a new service for healthcare providers. Fill us in on that. Yeah, um, this is pretty exciting. And as our listeners know, a lot of healthcare providers struggle with ways to get patients to medical appointments, especially some of those critical follow-up appointments after a hospital stay. And Uber has developed an interesting solution to this problem. So we've all used Uber, but how does this work in the healthcare context, especially for patients who might not have a smartphone and a user account? Yeah, these are good questions and considerations that I I think Uber has looked into. Um, And so from what they've publicly announced, at least, the healthcare provider uses their online platform to schedule rides for patients. So Uber has set up uh, this internet tool for the healthcare provider. They use that to schedule the rides, and then the providers build at the same rate that the regular Uber fare would have been for that trip if the patient had booked it using his or her smartphone. Um, And the patients who are the riders don't need to have their own Uber account. It all runs through the healthcare provider's platform. And then to your point about patients who may not have smartphones, they will get a text when the ride has been booked and then another text when the driver is on the way. And actually, if they don't even have a cell phone at all, there is a way for the provider to kind of coordinate some of this without the patient even having a phone. Wow, so it sounds pretty easy to use for all types of patients, but what about the compliance issues for providers? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember uh, pretty well when the OIG issued that final rule on the local transportation safe harbor back in December of 2016. Does the Uber Health fall under that safe harbor, or should providers be concerned about the beneficiary inducement problem? Right. Well, this, I mean, this was the first thing that I thought of when I heard of Uber Health, uh, because obviously if the provider is paying Uber for the fare, then this is something of value that could be considered a beneficiary inducement or perhaps a kickback. So, of course, providers want to be cautious and would best be protected if the arrangement falls within that safe harbor that you mentioned. So some of the requirements of that safe harbor are a provider having a uniformly applied policy for how it uses the local transportation service, in this case, Uber Health. Um, Other requirements are that the availability of transportation should not be advertised or marketed. It should only be offered to established patients, 
and it must be made available to all patients, not just Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries. Got it. Yeah, and these are just some examples. There are obviously more requirements. Uh, so if a listener is interested in engaging with Uber Health or another ride-sharing service, we really recommend that you consult with a fraud and abuse attorney. Uh, Kurt Copper in our Columbus office has a lot of really great experience in this area and could be a resource. Kurt would be a terrific resource. So one thing, Courtney, I was wondering about is, is the fact that the safe harbor requires drivers or anyone arranging for that transportation not to be paid on that per-beneficiary transported basis. And I was thinking, isn't Uber essentially a a per-pickup payment? Yeah, so, I mean, in some ways you're right, but the fare is really based on the mileage and the travel time, not the number of passengers in the car, and of course certainly not the number of Medicare beneficiary passengers. Oh, got it. And the OIG expressly said in the preamble to the rulemaking that the provider, quote, could pay on the basis of total distance traveled by a vehicle, unquote. So we don't really see any big issues with the way in which Uber would be paid in that regard. Got it. What about um, the safe harbor excluding any certain types of providers? Right. So most all service providers are included as in physicians, hospitals, home, even home health agencies. There was a discussion about that in the preamble. Um, but OIG excluded entities that supply healthcare items as opposed to those that really we more traditionally think of as providing services. So for example, pharmacies, durable medical equipment suppliers, and pharmaceutical manufacturers are not covered under the safe harbor. So for our physician hospital and other provider listeners, if these programs are set up properly, it sounds like Uber Health or other similar ride services could be used in a compliant manner to avoid fraud and abuse concerns. But the other big looming question is privacy. How does a provider navigate all those HIPAA considerations? Yes, absolutely a key point for providers to think about. Uber says that its online platform is HIPAA compliant and it is willing to sign business associate agreements with providers. So some of the major boxes are checked, but there's still a lot of questions in this area about whether the services would require Uber to enter into sub-business associate agreements with its drivers. Yeah, who are independent contractors. That seems unlikely. Uh, to for Uber, at least, to, to do. And then the company has said that the drivers will not be given any information that shows the passenger ordered the ride through Uber Health. So from the driver's perspective, it'll just look like any other fare. Oh, good. But the driver, of course, by virtue of being the driver, knows the pickup and drop-off location just from having taken the trip. But Courtney, in thinking about how this will work, there will be different drivers coming and going. Right. Because that's how Uber works. So one driver may pick up a patient, drop off at a hospital location, but a different one would pick them up. So the driver won't know, as you said, that it's even an Uber health passenger, let alone whether that person is actually going for an appointment, perhaps picking up a family member, or even just going there to work. Exactly. Yeah. So I think these are considerations, but... By and large, for most providers, the fact that, again, the online platform is HIPAA compliant, Uber is signing business associate agreements with the providers, some of these sort of more detailed nuances about how the drivers interact in this space and whether OCR is going to consider that a problem, we don't know. But for most of our listeners, I don't think that this is 
a big enough risk area to prevent someone from engaging with Uber Health in this manner or any other ride-sharing service that has the HIPAA-compliant policies that Uber has installed. So as long as folks are being mindful and aware of some of the HIPAA risks and considerations, these sorts of things, for the reasons you stated, shouldn't prevent someone from exploring this as a way to get patients to the healthcare that they need. Courtney, what information will Uber itself have? We just talked about the driver, but the Uber platform will contain what? According to Uber's public announcements, their online platform will contain the patient's full name and the pickup and drop-off information and also note, perhaps, or, or one could discern that that person is a patient of the provider. So Uber is going to have more information, of course, than the driver, and that's going to be within this HIPAA-compliant platform. But just the fact that they have all this data is another place for there to potentially be a breach. So providers may want to carefully consider their indemnity provisions, cyber insurance requirements, things of that nature when they're contracting with any ride-sharing service to make sure they're adequately protected. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. It's certainly another intriguing innovation in the healthcare space. This concludes today's podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have questions, comments, or have topics of interest you'd like us to cover in the future, please contact us. I'm Ann Hollenbeck at ahollenbeck at jonesday.com. And I'm Courtney Carroll at ccarroll at jonesday.com. Don't miss out on our next edition. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.